Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Maritz, welcome to the Bonnie Podcast. Excited to have you. Carol, thank you so much for having me. Look forward to speaking to you today. Yeah, we don't have too many non-Bengalis, but um, obviously, like it's you're here because you're um, you have an investment vehicle where uh, people can invest in co- companies in Bangladesh and, and, and neighboring countries. How how did you get industri- interested in doing something like this? Well, thanks, uh, thanks for asking. So I I basically been past five and a half, almost six years of been investing in you know emerging markets or frontier emerging markets, and a lot of that time has been spent in the South Asia region. And as part of that, I obviously spent time in, in Bangladesh. Now, when I spent time in Bangladesh, it's primarily been with public companies investing for one of the largest investment funds folks on the region in public companies, a fund called Kingsway, where I've been for over five years. Now, through that work, I think I, yeah, obviously I've gotten to know the market pretty well. I've gotten to know the companies well. I've gotten to know, in some cases, regulators and, and also other you know, policymakers. What we've realized is that actually Bangladesh, for many investors, was actually not that accessible. Because while Kingsway Capital is an investment fund that has you know, uh, investors, it's an investment fund that has a high minimum requirement, has a long lockup, has high fees. And basically what investors would like increasingly is also to have direct access, access that they basically can buy themselves, buy through their broker, um, and that basically gives them a concert exposure. Because what you unfortunately see is that Bangladesh, as exciting as the story is, there's not a single ETF focused on Bangladesh today until the Cubs ETF was launched. The last ETF closed down maybe 18 to 20 months ago. And aside from that, if you look at the indices that focus on, let's call it the region, Bangladesh's exposure within those indices is very small. So your ability to get exposed to Bangladesh, if you don't want to go directly, is frankly very hard. And for most investors who've tried to go directly, they find it's been very you know, troubling or very, very difficult, given the issues around custody, clearing, uh, brokerage, account opening. And therefore, for most investors, it's frankly too much of a hassle to go direct. And in the absence of a product to go indirect, people frankly overlook the country from an investment uh, portfolio perspective, despite the interest and despite the, the the story that's coming out of Bangladesh, which is increasingly positive. So you talk about, uh, so it's an ETF, it's called Cubs. Um, how did the name come about? Correct. So you basically have the president of the Asian Growth Tigers, which is obviously okay. is a you know, pretty well uh, researched president from the 80s and 90s. What I'm looking at essentially is what I believe are the next generation of tigers, therefore mm. the, the Cubs. And it's essentially focused on five countries in South and Southeast Asia, that have, you know, I think a compelling investment story, compelling growth track record, but have frankly have low to no ETF penetration. Gotcha. And look at Bangladesh, a country which is one of the you know, fastest growing countries around the world for over 45 years, it's grown consecutive GDP, which is a remarkable feat. Only two other countries can meet that. The other two are China and Vietnam. And, and then if you look at Bangladesh, there's no ETF folks in the country. Now, I think the issue that people have is if they look at the region, as excited as I'm about Bangladesh, for many investors, investing just in Bangladesh is something that they feel less comfortable with. They'd rather diversify the risk across a number of countries, which are potentially at a similar stage of development, have a similar interesting story, but also have limited access. So instead of basically doing Bangladesh-specific ETF, we focused on five countries in the ETF, and that collectively we call those the Asian Growth Cubs. Cubs is the first active thematic ETF in the world focused on emerging markets. If you think about active thematic, essentially what we're applying is the school or the, the, the business that's been built by Cathy Wood or ARK Invest. But applying that to emerging markets, she's obviously pioneered and mastered the business in innovation, technology, uh, and other parts of you know the U.S. complex. But if you look at emerging markets, it's primarily dominated by passive ETFs. And historically, those passive ETFs have basically been concentrated on five countries, which basically overlooked particular stories like Bangladesh. 
Talk about, and uh, f- for people that aren't familiar, so uh, why invest in an ETF versus, you know, directly with a stock or if there's a mutual fund out there, why, why ETF versus those other investment vehicles? So I think there's a few advantages. There's, in, there's a tax advantage in the U.S. There's an execution advantage. Frankly, if you look at the product innovation, the majority of product innovation right now is actually coming out of the ETF space, not in the mutual fund space. Ideally, if you could go direct, investors would go direct. And I think what's different about Bangladesh or our countries in the, the CUBS cohort versus other emerging markets such as China, India, or LATAM is historically you could get access to China, India, LATAM through what they call ADRs, American Depository Receipts, which are basically listed in New York and basically give direct exposure to underlying countries. Now, what's different about the CUBS is you have low to no ADRs covering the region. So if you're going to go to the region, you can't rely on New York listed ADR to get exposure to Bangladesh because none of the Bangladesh companies have done that before. Mm. So in the absence of being able to go direct, i.e. through an ADR, or even direct into the country, which again, for many people is too much of a challenge, mm-hmm. you basically have to go through an indirect vehicle. And if you look at the mutual fund space, it's basically low to no mutual funds that focus on the region. And the ETF space is a similar story. I think the ETF is basically the wrapper or the vehicle of the future, which is why we focus on launching an active thematic ETF focused on accessing these countries. And ultimately, given what we believe is the highest, the highest quality exposure, which is liquid to investors who want to access this. And where does this fit in? This ultimately fits into a wider emerging markets allocation. So today, if you buy the index, you buy five countries, which are 85% of the index. Increasingly, people want to diversify beyond the index. People want to diversify beyond China. Getting that diversification is very hard. Cub is one of the few key ways to get that emerging markets mm-hmm. diversification. Gotcha. So you started off talking about how you've been in, uh, exposed. Uh, you had a lot of exposure to Bangladesh and you visited there often. How is that like? I'm just curious. How, how's, what did you think about the food? And just so the I, culture. Yeah, I mean, it's, I've had an amazing time in Bangladesh. I mean, pre-COVID, I used to go several times a year. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I think what, what struck me is there's definitely, a, you know, obviously a work ethic. There's definitely a, a culture of, of, you know, people are very dedicated to, to the, the business they're building. Uh, I think there's a, just, you know, entrepreneurial spirit in a lot of the business that we saw that, that were mm-hmm. being built. Uh, I think ultimately the, the businesses that are, you know, more established, there was you know, responsible um, shareholder um, uh, management. So I think the businesses were run for shareholders, not for, for personal or for government interests in many cases. So I think overall our experience is very good. And, you know, frankly, my time in Dhaka has been, you know, it's been very positive. I think Dhaka is a, a very special place, um, not least because of the demographics you have in Dhaka and also kind of the, the vibrancy and the dynamic, the dynamism you see in Dhaka. The, yeah, so, the yeah. energy is unmatched. Uh, is, that, or is that the only city that you visited? No, so I, I, I've been to Chittagong as well, um, okay. but spent most of the time in Dhaka. Um, and you know, I think you know, when you go to Dhaka, for me, it's, it's an incredible place. I, I can't think of many places in the world that have that same energy, dynamism, uh, mm. but also just that you know, inertia, which you feel when you're in the, in the country, in the city. And ultimately, you see that back in the companies that are based either in or around the city. Uh, so ultimately, I think it's a, it's a phenomenal place. And um, yeah, I would say it's very different to most other places I visit in the region. But also, I think that also kind of underscores why Bangladesh is perhaps a pretty unique story in the greater region of South and Southeast Asia. What do you think some of the biggest obstacles are for uh, Bangladeshi companies to um, attract foreign investment? So I think historically, it's been issues that are, you know, frankly, slightly beyond our control. So, for example, liquidity has been an issue. I think mm. foreign investment generally come in size. I think as the, you know, the, the market has grown, liquidity is becoming less of an issue. I think access is still an issue. So for many investors, you know, they, you know, t- before the ETF was there, there was no access. For many investors, going for the ETF is still, you know, suboptimal versus going direct. I think if there was a better, easier way for investors to access the country directly, be that through an ADR or basically facilitating the direct investment process better, that would probably facilitate more capital flows. 
But I think ultimately the story of Bangladesh is, is turning. And if you rewind 10 or 20 years ago, I think the story about Bangladesh was still unfortunately stricken by poverty, stricken by, by you, know, um, uh, you know, risk, and stri- mm-hmm. stricken by you know, uh, instability. I think the story of Bangladesh today is one of opportunity, one of growth, one of stability. Now, I think periodically, obviously, there are you know, major, oh, sorry, there are minor you know, uh, you know, uh, issues you see potentially on the government side. But I think in general, the government's been very supportive in trying to attract capital to grow the capital market. I think what would help further is if the Bangladeshi stock market were to actually uh, list more companies locally mm. with those sectors which investors want exposure to. So I think investors' interest to get exposure to state or enterprises is, is limited. I think as investors' interest to get exposure to healthcare companies, which are, of course are very, very prevalent in Bangladesh, but also technology companies would actually drive further capital to the market. So overall, I think the government's done a great job. Uh, I think the government obviously realizes that there's still more work to do. Uh, but I think the government's very proactive in doing that. And you know, in my mind, that was also evidenced by the roadshow they organized this summer in the U.S., focused on attracting public investment back to the country, which I was very fortunate to be invited by by Professor Shibley, the head of the SEC. And I think what that underscores is that you know, Bangladesh is open for business, Bangladesh is growing, and Bangladesh is also looking to new ways to attract foreign capital to its markets. So I don't know if you looked saw my LinkedIn. We're connected on LinkedIn, but my day job's in compliance. So... I uh, I'm curious about uh, what sort of risks you think exists in in terms of like bribery and insider trading, and how have you baked that into your model? Yeah, so basically every company in the portfolio in Bangladesh or across all the countries we have met, that means if we know them, they know us. And while we have a strict process that involves top-down quantitative screening and bottom-up qualitative analysis, ultimately as part of that bottom-up qualitative analysis, we meet each company. Because the mm-hmm. point is, there's something that screen well, but until you meet them actually in person, you don't really know if you want to be associated with the company. Mm. Now, many of the companies in the portfolio have actually been meeting in Bangladesh for a number of years. So these are not companies that are necessarily new to me. Um, maybe to give you an outside-in proxy on, on the portfolio, we take you know, considerations such as ESG very seriously, governance very seriously, uh, financial audits, financial quality very seriously. And if you look at like your other investors in the market, there's very few foreign investors in the market, but one of the big ones is Norge. And if you look at the Cubs portfolio, specifically in Bangladesh, roughly 90% of the Cubs portfolio in Bangladesh is also owned by Norge. Now, I think Norge, for many investors, is seen from a third-party perspective as one of the most credible institutional third-party investors in the world. And I think that's an outside in validation that you know we have material overlap in Bangladesh with Norge. Well, how so, do you spell Norge? How do you? How do you... Uh, N-O-R-G-E-S. Uh, it's okay. the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. It's a Norwegian sovereign wealth fund. Okay. Okay. I didn't know that. Wow. Um... So what what are some of so I I think some of the industries that come to mind that people would think that you're covering obviously is garments uh, probably transportation what are some of the uh, uh, some underestimated or unknown industries that in Bangladesh that you see investing in so so actually within our portfolio we we try and avoid the leg what we call legacy industries okay so if you look at like what is our biggest exposure in Bangladesh it's actually in the healthcare sector and that's across bigger companies like Square but also smaller companies like Beacon. Aside from that, we also focus on the FMCG sector. We have a position in the utility sector, in the telco sector, and also in the banking sector. But the bank we're invested in, Brack Bank, also has a material digital banking presence. Because ultimately, what we're looking to benefit or what we're looking to invest in in Bangladesh is not just the, the growth that's there today, but I think it's the growth outlook. And the growth outlook, in our mind, is going to be facilitated by the strong demographic you see in Bangladesh, which is a young, educated, increasingly digital-enabled population. Now, sadly, there's a limited number of public companies in Bangladesh that are liquid on the technology side, but we believe that that's one of the key areas where I think the government could actually attract a lot more capital if it was able to harness some technology listings into the country. So I think the bottom line is 
we are focused not on in, in general on steel, cement, tobacco companies. We're focused on what we believe are the countries of the, the future, which again we call the cubs, but also the industries within those countries. And again, in our mind, that gears to tele- technology, healthcare, digital banking, and FMCG. Mm. So, you know, you talked about earlier that you noticed this entrepreneurial uh, sort of spirit among a lot of the founders. Um, yeah, I think that that's, I feel like that's a very new thing. I think traditionally, um, there weren't many entrepreneurs that, that uh, stayed in the country. It seemed like they, you know, they would leave, come to the US, UK. Um, what do you think turned that around? I think it's I think it's still in the early stages, and I think what you're starting to see is actually there's a lot more foreign capital interest right now on the private side than in the public side in Bangladesh. And one evidence or one example of that is the fact that Shopup was able to raise I think it was the largest ever venture capital round in Bangladesh last month. Mm. Now I think what's happened is through technology, private entrepreneurs have realized there's actually abilities to to build businesses in a country that somewhat mitigate the historical concerns around red tape, compliance, and the mm. like which they may have had. And if you look at the businesses that are being built that I think are you know, in the spirit of the entrepreneurial nature of the future of the country, it's a lot of them are technology-enabled businesses. Mm. So the technology has a big role in unlocking opportunity and also surpassing some of the historical, I don't want to say boundaries, but potential barriers that people thought there were if they were to build a business in Bangladesh. But even leaving aside technology, I think there's a number of domestic companies, some of which are still private, that have grown immensely, have diversified successfully, also have businesses abroad, but frankly are still Bangladeshi by origin. And I think that, again, that speaks to the entrepreneurial nature of the country. I think Bangladesh is an amazing opportunity, but I think one of the biggest opportunities for Bangladesh is also the export market. And I think that hunger to basically harness the local and the international market speaks to the entrepreneurial nature of the businesses and the jockeys running these businesses. Mm. Talk about some of the specific companies. Um, you mentioned some of them. What are some of the specific companies that you guys are invested in? Sure. So we're in, on the healthcare space, we're invested in, in Renata, in Maximco, in Square, and in Beacon. Um, in the telecom space, we're invested in Grameen. In the banking space, we're invested in uh, BrackBank, which obviously is the biggest shareholder of, of Bcash. And then we're also invested in uh, a utilities company called Summit. Uh, we were invested in Marico, which we think is a great business, but frankly, the liquidity of the position is, is too small to facilitate or to allow its inclusion in ETF. Again, I think there are other companies in Bangladesh we'd love to invest in, but frankly, they're either too small or still private today. Our hope is that some of the technology unicorns you're starting to see in Bangladesh today will one day list locally instead of globally. I think mm-hmm. the regulators are very focused on growing its local capital market, which should allow it, which should encourage it to list these things locally before globally. And if so, that would hopefully see mean that would hopefully include them in the portfolio. What's your impression uh, impressions of the regulators in Bangladesh and their sense of uh, urgency to uh, you know implement uh, compliance uh, uh, environments in these companies? So I think that the, the government is increasing reckon, realize that they want to attract more foreign capital and they need to basically elevate to global standards to attract that foreign capital. So I think that means that the government is becoming more strict on, on for example, on, on, on audit and on you know, regulatory compliance. But the government's also, I think, increasingly trying to learn from what other countries in the region have done successfully in terms of attracting foreign capital and losing as lessons to Bangladesh. So I think you can only applaud you know, Professor Shibley and what he's trying to do in the US specifically, but also now in Europe. We're trying to drive foreign invest, foreign public investment flows into the country. Um, I think specifically, the issue in, in Bangladesh, I think, is not so much being compliance related. And of course, there are incidental compliance issues. Mm-hmm. I think it's more a question of, you know, do people feel they're comfortable with the country, with the regime, with the foreign exchange exposure? And also, do they feel they're comfortable actually being a shareholder in a Bangladeshi company? 
And I think the fact that you know, a player like Norge can be such a material player in a market like Bangladesh, I think underscores the fact that the Bangladesh is open for business. Bangladesh is investable. And there's other markets which, to give you an example, Norge does not invest in. So, for example, Pakistan, Norge does not invest in. But mm. they do invest in Bangladesh. Mm. So I think listen, there's still work to be done. But I think overall, the direction of travel is, is very positive. Uh, I think the kind of diversity uh, and the mix of listings would help driving further capital to the country. But I think the government's aware of that and the government is trying to do what it can. I think ultimately that this process takes time, but I think it starts off with having the right mindset, the right people and the right focus. So you, you may, uh, so you mentioned Bangladesh is one of the countries. So it's, uh, what, so what are the other countries? Uh, and then, so how do the, what's like the underlying common factor among those countries? So it's five countries. Um, it's Bangladesh, Indonesia, Pakistan, Philippines, Vietnam. These five countries today have 860 million people expected by the World Bank to grow to a billion people by 2035. Collectively, they have uh, 350 million smartphones, which collectively would, if you look at it on, on a collect space, would make it the third largest smartphone market in the world. And if you look at the GDP of the countries, roughly of these five countries together, is roughly as big as India. So the point is, what, what's, how do we get to these five countries? The world has 193 countries, and one of the first criteria we look at is countries which have more than 100 million people. The second criteria we look at is we look at countries that have grown dollar nominal GDP since 2000 over 5% a year. The third criteria we look at, we look at countries that have had less than 5% FX depreciation a year since 2000. And that basically leaves you only actually with nine countries. And the nine countries you're left with are uh, the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and the Cubs. And the reality is the BRICS, you can actually get exposed to in many ways, through the index, direct, through an ADR. A lot of them are listed in New York. Mm. That doesn't apply to the Cubs. So that's why the Cubs is a unique product. Um, it's unique in that I think it acts as it has a, you know, a large opportunity. It's a liquid opportunity. It's a young opportunity. It's a digitally enabled opportunity. And ultimately, it's an opportunity that has low to no inclusion or indexation today. And one of the biggest opportunities I think you see across the Cubs is that foreign investors have, over the past 10 years, shifted from what I would call frontier markets to emerging markets or developed markets. At some point, they will come back to these frontier markets. The opportunity today is to come back into these markets before foreigners return and historically depress valuations. Part of the reasons why valuations are depressed is because foreigners have been selling and locals have basically been the marginal buyer in these markets. So it's, you've got to take a long-term view. We're not trying to you know, arb in and out of stocks or, or, or countries on a, on a you know, monthly, yeah. quarterly basis. We believe these countries are this decade at the core of what we believe is the, the, the emerging $1 billion people joining the middle class in Asia. Mm. And if you look at what that breakdown that breakdown, you see that breakdown between India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Philippines, Pakistan, and ultimately Vietnam. Gotcha. Yeah, I remember when Goldman Sachs uh, uh, drafted that initial list of BRIC countries, Bangladesh is one of the next 10. Um, and that was, uh, you, know, over, you know, I was in college when, when that, ha that, that happened. And I remember talking to my economics professor, but he kind of, and he kind of laughed at the potential of Bangladesh. Um, this was over 20 years ago. So I'm glad to see that a lot of those uh, a lot of the uh, potential is coming to fruition for, for Bangladesh. Uh, I think for people in the diaspora, it's just great to see. I mean, a lot of us obviously left or our parents left to have a better life here you know, elsewhere. But now that to see that a lot of these, um, there's so much more improvements going on at, going, going on at home where um, to the point where people like our mutual friend Rahat has gone back and started companies there. And I've seen more and more people do that. It's, uh, it's great to see. I think people are increasingly open to the fact that there's actually an opportunity for young people in Bangladesh to actually you know, uh, build a business, create an opportunity, uh, and potentially make a living. And I think that's exciting. And 
at some point, hopefully, you know, I appreciate there's been a, a long time when I think some people have called it the brain drain. Mm. Uh, I think at some point you'd hope that some of the talent that's left the country may come back to the country directly or indirectly. Uh, and I think the country is becoming more you know, susceptible, more open to having younger people building businesses and you know, building future generations of, of businesses in the country. What's an example of another country that where, let's say, uh, where Bangladesh is today, uh, another country that was in this sort of position, um, wait, let's say, 50 years ago? Um, I mean, I mean, I mean the, the, you know, the, the kind of examples that, that external people draw, and again, it's not a like-for-like demographic example, but you know, if you look at what the trajectory of, say, Vietnam, yeah. if you look at the trajectory of, say, South Korea, um, there's increasing parallels drawn between these three countries, South Korea being the most advanced, Vietnam being in the middle, and Bangladesh being obviously the, mm-hmm. the right. Um, and I think the story there is export-driven economies, export-driven economies where the country was able to upgrade its export base, so moving from garments to technology. Uh, I think obviously in Bangladesh that's still in progress. But then what you're starting to see is that Bangladesh is starting to hydrate its... <coughs> Sorry. Bangladesh is starting to hydrate its export base. And as part of that, I think you'll see that the, the country is looking to move up the, the export ladder. So I think there, there's definitely a number of comparisons in the region. Again, the most successful being South Korea. Um, but I think the idea of, of uh, yeah, I, I think Vietnam and South Korea are the best examples. And you know, frankly, their yeah, history, which precedes Bangladesh, is, is equally successful. In many ways, I think Bangladesh is actually, you know, as I mentioned before, there's only three countries in the world that have grown nominal GDP for 45 years in a row. That's China, Bangladesh, and Vietnam. And I think that suggests that, you know, Bangladesh opportunities is a pretty unique opportunity. If you think about Bangladesh, I think this year only celebrated its independence for 50 years this year. So 45 of, of its 50 years of independence has grown consecutive GDP. Throughout 2020, throughout 2008, those are the, con- the statistics that few countries can marry. Hmm. What did you think about the food in Bangladesh? Um, so, I'll be honest with you, when I've been in Bangladesh, I've, I've eaten in one or two company canteens, but ultimately I often eat in a hotel. Mm. Um, or I eat, um, there's a, a sushi restaurant in, in Dhaka where I've, uh, I've had dinner. But the eating, the food I've had in the canteens has been very good. Um, but I wouldn't say I've been very well acquainted with, um, with, the, with the cuisine in the country. Something that hopefully a future I can spend more time in. But frankly, so far when I've gone, I've basically been there strictly for business. And course. frankly, in many cases, being relatively short visits. Gotcha. Yeah, no, and you have to be careful because our foreign, our foreign stomachs uh, don't acclimate well to to the spices in Bangladesh. I've I've had, I've had that problem. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I hope we get to go back and actually spend more time. It, it's a beautiful country, especially outside. Dhaka is cool, but you know, obviously, it's very congested and polluted. But I think if you get out to the countryside, it's very very beautiful. So I spent some time in Vietnam last year, and the countryside. Was equally beautiful, and uh, is equally beautiful. The countryside in Vietnam is gorgeous, but then uh, in Bangladesh, is the countryside. The villages are also equally, equally beautiful. And uh, thank you for coming on. I, I I love that. I love what you're doing. Obviously, giving opportunities to companies in Bangladesh and individuals in Bangladesh. So, I I learned a lot from this conversation. I hope you come back and we'll do some other stuff. But um, and finally, actually, uh, where can people um invest? How can people invest in Cubs? Sure. So Cubs right now is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. The ticker is Cubs. You can, you know, it's daily trades you know, at any point of the day, just like any other stock. We're looking to add a Hong Kong listing, a potentially a London listing later uh, in, in start of next year. And at that point, it'll basically be more accessible. But for now, um, and, you know, any ETF you can buy in US, you can buy Cubs in the exact same fashion. And to give you an idea, obviously, 
It's New York listed. The market makers are some of the you know the best market makers in the market, which basically explains that the spreads have been you know very tight so far, um, and you know execution has been flawless. Uh, the custody is done by Bank of New York Mellon. The the um, compliance is done by Foresight. Uh, ETC, the third lar- the largest ETF third party ETF issuer in the world, is the ETF issuer for the product. And I think the focus is basically um, is New York listed has the best execution parties, and we basically want to make sure that people. Are comfortable with the execution, so that all they have to basically take a view on is is the investment merit and the you know, um, sizing within their overall yen portfolio. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Um, yeah, we'll we'll talk some more. Great, um, Carol. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun to speak, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Absolutely. With diamonds and pearls, yeah, yeah. Bengal is a New York, all over the world. Uh, it's the bony show. Hey, uh, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live. From the slang we spit to the gangs we with, it doesn't matter. We the essence of the Bangladesh. I say, hey, come on, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live.